This is the Ether Podcast. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Rachel. And this is Ryan. And today uh, we're continuing our series in the book of Mark, although we're doing a series within a series. Uh, today we're starting a three-part series on Jewish society, and we're going to do one podcast about the temple, another one about the religious groups slash leadership groups that existed in Israel at this time, and that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and sort of all the groups that Jesus encounters. And lastly, we're going to do a podcast about the destruction of the temple. And the reason why we're doing this is because Mark 11, 12, and 13 address this. And we wanted to do this podcast because it can, we, the, the weight and the significance of both what Jesus is doing and is saying in these three chapters can be very easily lost if we don't fully understand all of the background in it. And I think one of the things that we're seeking to do with our study of Mark is for people who will listen and watch our videos to really understand it very deeply. And and so we're gonna we're gonna share a lot of historical stuff, a lot of background stuff. We're talking about the temple today very much in depth. And some of the stuff uh, it, we sort of picked all the necessary things again to really explain in a great deal of depth what is happening and the significance of all the things that Jesus is doing and we're doing this so that you can understand what's going on more richly so you can connect with it and so that you can uh, increase I guess both your uh, spiritual biblical and historical understanding of the gospel of Mark and so we're going to do this three-part series, hopefully a series within a series once more on our podcast. And we're very excited about it. Uh, we've done a lot of research for it. And hopefully you will enjoy it as much as we have. And without further ado, Rachel, why don't you read the scripture that we're going to focus on for this particular podcast? All right. So we're going to be reading Mark 11, verse 12 through 25. And if you're reading... Along with me, I am reading out of the ESB version. Okay. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And when they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple, and he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered him, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. 
Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Okay, so that is the scripture we're talking about in Mark 11. Um, And like you introduced, Rodrigo, we are going to be talking about the temple. Obviously, this is um, a pretty popular passage people generally know about Jesus coming to the temple and clearing the temple. Um, You know, us as Christians, 21st century Christians, we don't really have anything like the temple. So sometimes it can be hard for us to connect to what the temple is, what the significance is. So I know, Rodrigo, you and I were talking before recording this, and you had a great idea, I think, of how to get us to connect to this idea of what the temple meant and its general significance in Jewish life. So I wanted to start there with you talking about that. One of the ways I think we can connect with this is there is, it's hard to uh, do a tit-for-tat comparison to our modern life because there is no building, there's no um, place that is as significant to us as the temple was to the Jews. That being said, though, it's not like we are completely ignorant to what it is to regard a building, a place, as a place of reverence, as a place that's special, sort of holy ground, if you will. And the one place that really came to mind, about six or seven years ago, uh, I visited New York City. I was there for work. And uh, I just happened to have the chance to go to the 9-11 Memorial, which at the time was, was newly opened. And one of the things that really struck me is, new, if you've ever been to New York City, it is one of the most, one of the noisiest places that you could ever go to. I mean, everywhere you go, there's noise, and there's traffic noise, and there's people talking, and there's music. New York City is, is sensory overload. But what really struck me is that as soon as you get to a block away from the 9-11 Memorial, it, everything goes quiet. As soon as you approach this place, it's almost like there's a respect and there's a reverence and the mood around that building is completely different than the mood of the city in general. And again, I think even that to this country, 9-11 is a very significant uh, uh, event. To that city, it's a super significant event. And that place has a great significance. And again, there's, there's a reverence, there's a respect for that place. And yet, that pales in comparison to what the temple in Jerusalem was. And so I'm just sharing this to sort of uh, try to give us a contemporary reference point to what the temple was to Jesus and to the people of his time. And um, like I said, I think our goal with this podcast is to really help our audience understand the depth of the temple and the breadth of it as well. And to do that, one of the things that we have to address is the history of it. And I know, Ryan, that you want to comment on that. 
Yeah. Yeah, I I love looking at the history of the Bible, kind of starting at the beginning and, and going through it, because I think that it, it gives such context to what happens in the New Testament, and the New Testament is so built on everything that's in the Old Testament. But I think especially with the temple, the temple has been in Jewish history at the time of Jesus for over a thousand years. And so there's layer layer upon layer and level upon level of significance and interpretation of what it means. Um, they've reevaluated its position in society and in their culture again and again. It's been written about throughout their their religious scriptures and um, it becomes the center of their culture. And you know, as you were talking about, we don't have the ability in 21st century Western culture to understand its significance. I think one thing that we have to keep in mind is that throughout most of human history, and even still in mo many parts of the world today, religion and government were connected. In the United States, there's this very clear separation of church and state um, that we were very intentional about. And 200 years into this American experiment, we're still trying to figure out what that means as far as can we have the Ten Commandments in our government buildings and um, do we say prayers in public schools? And we're still addressing these questions because it's still so new to us. And to some degree, we feel like our religion and our politics are such parts of us. It's kind of got this, this weird place in our own minds. Whereas many people around the world and people throughout history, their government and their religion were so closely tied together. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so many world empires were built on this idea of the head of state being regarded as a god or he was a priest or some religious figure within that culture and within that society where you've got the Roman Caesars being prayed to because they were gods. Um, you had um, the Babylonian and Assyrian leaders were originally priests that took on the mantle of being a king. And so it's got this religious and governmental marriage all throughout history. And that's significant because what it means is that when we consider a, an important building in American culture, we think of the White House, mm -hmm. we think of the Capitol building, we think of 9-11 um, and the Twin Towers, but these are all governmental places. And so they're missing like right. half of the significance that something like the temple would have occupied. Um, right. And so the temple does take on this, this incredibly unique position within the culture itself. And it's one that we do have a hard time understanding. But as we go all the way back to how it began, we begin to see its significance from the beginning, where in the very first chapters of Genesis, the relationship that God had with his people was a one-on-one -on -one 
individual kind of relationship. And that relationship then spread out to the families, the immediate family. But it wasn't until God came to Moses and said, I have a people that I regard as my own. And all of a sudden, this relationship between God and his people takes this giant step forward where God claims that I am their God and they are my people. And Moses is sent in to, to bring the Israelites out, the Jewish people out of Egypt. They're wandering through the desert and God brings them to the foot of this mountain. And he tells them, I will be your God. You'll be my people. And in fact, I'm going to live among you, which is something even culturally that would have been completely unique. All these foreign gods outside and away from the people and uh, lived apart from them. And they had intermediaries with priests, but the purpose of the temple for these foreign cultures was to create some sort of um, location where people could connect to the gods. But that's not necessarily where the god lived. Um, and here, Yahweh, our Christian or Jewish God, is saying, I'm going to live amongst you. And I want to live in this constructed position, this place that I want you to build for me, and I want you to call it the tabernacle. And then it becomes a uh, the center of Jewish life, that it was geographically at the center of, of their life, that, that for 40 some odd years, the Jews were wandering through the wilderness, and every time they would set up to camp, they would camp in a very specific arrangement. And at the center of the Jewish people would be the tabernacle. And so God lays out very specific instructions for them. He says, I want you to build the tabernacle with these specific designs, and I want this it to be laid out in this specific way, and I want these three groups to uh, to dwell to the north of the tabernacle. I want these three groups to dwell to the south, these three to the east, and these three to the west. And so God is literally in the middle of the Jewish community. And we see that, that he's completely surrounded by people so that when the other nations looked at the Jews and they see this people wandering around the desert, and they hear that these people are coming and they want news about them, one of the things that they find out is that their God lives among them. Their God lives in the center of them. And when they camp, he's in the center of their camp. And when they wake up in the morning and when they go to sleep, he is in the center of their community. And it was built into the thread and the fabric of the religion and into their faith. And that's how things existed. That's how things worked. He lived in, God dwelled in the tabernacle. And it said that Moses could go into the tabernacle and see the face of God, meaning that he was actually there, which is an amazing thing to be able to say that God, creator, was living in this movable tent. Mm -hmm. And he lived with them and he stayed with them for nearly a thousand years in this arrangement. And in... Second Chronicles 6, we have this big shift where 
the Jewish community has become a, a permanent fixture um, in the land of uh, Canaan, and they've set up lands, and they've been living there for years, and they now have started to have kings. And in Second Chronicles 6, we read the story of Solomon, the king of Israel, building a temple for God. And this is going to be the place where God lives and where God dwells. And he prays in Second Chronicles 6 that, that God, we know that this is just a building, but we pray that this becomes a, a fixture uh, amongst the people. We pray that you'll look towards this place, hear the prayers that we pray here. When people come to you, turn to them and hear what they have to say. And he finishes his prayer and in chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, verse 1, it says, When Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord. Mm. And you've got this amazing picture mm. of God himself coming down from heaven and inhabiting the temple. And so moving forward into their history, you see that, that God is literally dwelling in this place. And it becomes not only the center of the community physically, uh, but it, it, it's literally where God himself dwells. And as people could look at the temple, they could know that God himself was here among us. And that there's, there's obviously this sense of entitlement, this sense of belonging, this sense of confidence, this sense of uh, assurance that the Jewish people have now about them. Just being able to see the temple, because that is where God, God himself lives. And I may not have been alive to see the fire come down from the heavens and and take up residence in the temple, but I know that the temple's there and I know that that's where God lives. Mm -hmm. And the way that it's set up, they even took measures to, to make sure that, that people could continue to remember that God was there. That uh, in 1 Kings 8, it talks about... Um, the Ark of the Covenant being moved into the temple and it's carried on these poles that were so long, the poles extended through the curtain that divided the most holy place from the holy place and people could see, or not regular people, but priests <laughs> could see the ends of the poles protruding out through that curtain and they would be able to, to be reassured that that's where the Ark was, that's where God himself dwells and I may not be able to see the ark itself. I may not be able to see the presence and the glory of God. But being able to see just this little taste, just being able to see the poles that hold the ark gives me confidence that God is there and he is among us and in this, uh, in this building and in this place. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's helped them to have that, that glimpse of the, the eternal, that glimpse of God himself and reassured them. And if we continue on the story in Second Chronicles 7, uh, in verse uh, 11, 
It says, when Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and succeeded in carrying out all that he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I have heard your prayer and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sin and heal the land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. And my eyes and my heart will always be there. Mm -hmm. And as for you, Solomon, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and do all I command and observe my decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father when I said, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. And so God himself comes to Solomon here and he blesses the temple. And he says, this is where I will dwell forever. Mm -hmm. And he promises not only to remain faithful to Israel, but to keep Solomon's family on the throne of Israel forever, which is just, just a series of amazing promises that God gives to Solomon and tells him, I am with you on this. This is going to be the center of the Israel uh, kingdom, the Israelite kingdom, the Jewish kingdom. But he continues on, and in verse 19, he says, God says, but if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands I've given you and go off to serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I've given them, and I will reject this temple I've consecrated for my name. I will make it a byword and an object of ridicule among all peoples. This temple will become a heap of rubble, and all who pass by will be appalled and say, why has the Lord done such a thing to this land and to this temple? And people will answer, because they have forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them up out of Egypt and have embraced other gods, worshiping and serving them. That is why he brought all this disaster on them. Mm -hmm. And so God says, I will bless this place, but this comes with, with rules and conditions. And you need to remain committed to me, otherwise, I will not only reject this place, I will reject you as king, I will turn my back on my people, and this place will be destroyed. And so what we see is this time, this, this era with this temple is known as the first temple. Mm -hmm. Because what Israel's gonna do is, he's, is it's gonna have a series of temples in their history, and this is the first one. Because as we see reading through the Bible time after time, Israel turns their back on God, and God turns his back on them, they turn back to God and God turns back to them. And what God has promised here is that when you turn your back on me, I will reject this temple. Yep. And so what we see is that when the kings and the people of Israel turn their faith from God, God does in fact reject them and he allows them to be conquered. And about 500 years after this time, the Babylonian Empire or the Assyrian Empire comes in and takes out the northern kingdom of Israel. And about 100 years later, the Babylonian Empire comes in to Jerusalem and destroys the temple, flattens it to the ground, burns it, 
takes everything that's inside the temple, all the holy objects, back to Babylon and leaves the temple in complete and utter ruin, ruin. ashes. They steal the gold. Everything's gone. And the temple has been destroyed. And people look at this as the end of God's favor on his people. But as the Bible tells that people repent, God uh, brings them back and they build a second temple in the same place. And we have a very underwhelming description of that dedication of the second temple. And I'm not sure that that time or the dedication was that underwhelming, but just the description of it was. It's only given three verses in the book of Ezra. And it says in verse 15 of chapter six, the temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. That's it. That's all that it says for the dedication of the second temple. There's no fire that comes down from, uh, from heaven. There's no glory that seems to take up residence in the temple. Um, and I'm not sure entirely why that is. My speculation would be that, that, this, that God did not look as favorably on this temple. But the prophet Haggai, who was there and helping officiate, says in, in chapter 2 that not only is God's spirit with his people, but that uh, in Haggai 2.9, it says that the glory of this present house, the second temple, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And so the second temple is going to be even better than the first temple. So we get kind of a weird, a weird situation where um, uh, Israel is now living under the, the, the guidance and the rulership of another empire, another kingdom, but they've still got their temple, they're carrying out the rituals, they're carrying out their rites, and over the next 100 years or so, we see that different empires come in, the Persian Empire comes in, uh, uh, or the Persian Empire allows them to come back and build this temple. Alexander the Great comes in and he overthrows them, and uh, then we've got all these different battles going on in the area, um, and we've got uh, different kingdoms with the Maccabeans and the Hasmonean kings and all kinds of stuff. Then the Romans come in, and we enter what's called the Third Temple, uh, or Herod's Temple. And this is the temple that we have during Jesus' time. And this is the one that Jesus himself would have seen, and it would have been built up more by Herod, who was put into place by the Romans. And so you've got this blending, the, the, the temple, which is the center of Jewish life during this third temple period is a combination of work done by, by Jews living under the control of another kingdom. They built part of it, and then it was enhanced by 
a, a Roman overlord. And so the, the temple is now taking on a very different place in life. And this is the temple that we have with Jesus. And we'll get into some other, some other details and stuff about it. But this is kind of the history that we have of the temple. I think it's important to know what, what has gone on because it gives us context of where Jesus is and where his, these disciples are and where these stories start and where they're coming from. Yeah. Thank you for doing all that research, Ryan. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's really important for us to know the history of the temple, especially because it's not something we talk about even in church gatherings a lot of times, whereas this these histories would have been things that the Jews knew because they were talked about so frequently amongst the people and in gatherings of the Jews and so thank you for doing all that well even I mean we, we still talk about Hanukkah and Hanukkah is wrapped into this third temple period um, yes. and so yeah I mean it, it's part of their religious holidays and we'll talk about that here in just a couple minutes yeah so you know I think like what you were saying that it it's the it's the center of the government but it's also the center of their faith. Um, and so, you know, that's, I think that's where the depth of the significance of the temple is really felt because that's where God lived. That's where God dwelled among his people. Um, so I think now transitioning from history to really understanding the significance of the temple. Um, Rodrigo, if you could talk, you know, go into more depth about this idea of the temple being the place where God lives. Absolutely. Um, let me just say this, and we're going to delve more into a little bit of more of the Herod's temple on our third part of the podcast when we really talk about the destruction of the temple. But one of the things that I want to point out to add to what uh, Ryan was saying is that the temple has always been this magnificent place. It was adorned with, uh, supposedly with silver and gold. There was a lot of portrayals that we have now are sort of like of, of just bricks that are one color, but apparently it was painted different colors. It was this beautiful place. And part of the reason, again, is because it has such significance to just think, and, and Ryan alluded to this, the temple was a place where heaven and earth became one. God dwelled there. Heaven, even now, is this place that we're going to go to, and God is there, and we're going to be in communion with him. But the temple was a place here on earth where that was the case all the time. He lived there. He dwelled there. It was his place of residence. And so it was to the Jews, it was the house of the Lord. And even um, the temple sort of encompassed all of the history of not only the people of Israel, but also of the Bible. The architecture had a lot of uh, motifs that alluded back to the Garden of Eden. Um, it was, again, sort of supposed to encompass everything about their culture and their religion and God 
even to the point where because of the festivals that were held at the temple all these tribes go and live in different places in israel but where they would come to be one was the temple even uh, in jesus's time when there's no longer 12 tribes there's only uh two really the people uh the jews were sort of scattered all over the roman empire and they were scattered all over israel and during festivals like uh, the festival of booth and passover all these people from all over the roman empire would come to jerusalem to be at the temple together and it was hard for the jews to understand a present and a future and even an eternity without the temple being a part of it when the temple is destroyed by the babylonians literally it's like they don't know what to do they're taken into exile they're in a foreign land there's a lot of questions a lot of the religiosity revolved around the temple and so how are they jews now how do how, how do they perform their many religious rituals and stuff and i actually found this quote that sort of encompasses all that i'm talking about here and uh, this is by uh, rj mcvelly and he wrote a, a dictionary of biblical theology and this is what he writes about the temple it says the idea of the divine indwelling is fundamental to the biblical tradition. Jewish eschatology, which again is a fancy word talking about the end times. Jewish eschatology could thrive without the hope of a Messiah, but never without the hope of God's dwelling with his people. When the temple was destroyed in 587 BC, the hope of a new temple became central to eschatology the early Christians worked out their understanding of their new faith in terms drawn from the temple and the hope of a new temple. The place which, uh, the, place which the temple holds in both history and eschatology is those important for readers of the New Testament. And I think that says it perfectly, both for the past and even for our understanding of the New Testament. It's important that we understand the significance of the temple. And again, that, that's why we're doing this podcast. An understanding of the temple makes even our understanding, the Christian understanding that we are the temple, it makes it so much richer to, to think of the concept that this sacred building that was a huge deal, that now we are it. Hmm. To understand the significance of the temple in the Old Testament makes an understanding of us being the temple so much more important and so much richer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, you brought out a lot. I think especially talking about eschatology, talking about the significance of the temple, how everything revolved around it, how their national identity um, was around the temple, that everything about their life revolved around the temple, that what Ryan was talking about, the history, how historically it was in the middle of the community, um, both in a physical sense, but then also in a significant sense, it was in the middle of their society. Um, and, you know, I think 
I, this has been mentioned before and in a conversation that we had prepping for this. Um, you know, there are buildings, some religious buildings, there are some uh, cathedrals and um, Catholic churches that are very ornate and splendorous and grand. Um, and so when you walk in there, you do get this sense of awe when you walk into those spaces and um, you do feel, um, I would say people would say they have, they feel like they have a religious experience <laughs> when they walk into those places. But again, I don't know that that really gets to the depth of what the Jews felt when they entered the temple, when they were interacting with the temple, um, just what the temple, the position that the temple held in the minds of the Jewish people. Um, and then connecting that to when it was destroyed, <laughs> you know, um, Ryan, you talked a little bit about, you know, the different temples, but just the significance of then seeing that all taken away. Um, well, I think that um, in modern Christian philosophy, we tend to look at God and, and talk about this indwelling of the Holy Spirit and, and God lives in me and God lives in you, which is absolutely true. Correct. And it's an amazing thing that is not to be downplayed. But I think, unfortunately, we tend to downplay it in the sense that it almost seems common. Ah, I've got it. You've got it. That is um, such a good point, that, Ryan. That there's nothing super special about it in our modern culture and in, in our own psyches. Whereas in the Old Testament, during those times, God was viewed as he lives here in this one single place. Mm -hmm. And modern churches, and I say modern, but even talking about, you know, churches back into the Middle Ages and, um, you know, Christian cathedrals, you look at some of these Christian cathedrals or Catholic cathedrals or whatever, what have you, and they're designed to get you to think of the omnipotence of God. Right. That they're the reason that the they're so tall, especially these European mm -hmm. uh, Catholic and Protestant uh, churches, is because you're it, they're designed to make you look towards heaven or look mm -hmm. up. And, and gets you thinking about how small and insignificant I am as a man, as a human being. I'm nothing, and I'm here in this place that represents the home of God. But no Christian church ever says, this is the one and only place where God dwells. Mm -hmm. And the temple was that place. It was the one and only place where God dwelled. And so when it, it disappeared when it was burned down that was it was akin to saying our god has been destroyed mm -hmm. that the absolute central only reason why we exist as a people at all is because of god and even in their worst days i think that people would say the reason that we exist as a people is because of god maybe not in their worst days but um <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? That, that yeah. there's just this different philosophy that, that existed then where God was in one place 
as opposed to now where he's in many places and it's not to downplay any of that but i think it's just the common perception has shifted and we tend to regard it very differently now yeah and i i think you hit on an aspect that as modern readers jesus loses some of his radicalness in the new testament because we have the gift of hindsight we're beyond his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension and so we we have seen um the outpouring of the holy spirit we have seen the the start of the church and and all those kinds of things but Spoiler alert for the next couple of podcasts. (laughs) In case you didn't know, um, Jesus dies. Um, So, but I think you hit on for the Jews, because in this time God lived in one place, when Jesus starts talking about God in different ways and how we are going to interact with him in different ways, you can understand why they get so angry at him. I mean, the passage that we read, it says that they want to destroy him. It's not just, you know, they want to keep him quiet. They want to get him out of the country. It's they want to destroy him. Like this intense anger that the religious leaders have for him, which we'll be talking more about next week. I think really being able to take on the mindset can help us understand how radical Jesus was in their eyes. Um, so then you sort of hit on a little bit, Ryan, um, the design of cathedrals and how the height of the cathedrals are meant to bring us heavenward. And so something else we wanted to talk about was the temple in Jesus' day and talking about how it was set up, the way, the layout of the temple. Rodrigo, you talked a little bit about the way it looked and how it was ornate and things, but let's go into more depth about, you know, when you walked into the temple courts, the setup and and the way things were designed. Yeah, so um, let me first say why, even knowing what we're gonna talk about now, sort of the layout, why it matters, uh, specifically to, because of the passage that we're looking at. Um, you know, there were different parts of the temple that were meant for different people. There was a part of the temple that were that was sort of like as far as women could go. There was a part of the temple that was as far as Gentile believers could go. Uh, there was a part of the temple that was as far as uh, Jewish men could go. And then there was a part of the temple that was reserved for the high priests and sort of more of the priesthood that was dedicated to the temple. And so what we see in Mark 11 is that when Jesus enters Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and um, the part in which he's overturning tables, more than likely where he's doing that is in the probably the outermost part of the temple, which was uh, the temple courts and more specifically the court that was reserved for the Gentiles. And, you know, the temple was made basically of a bunch of different parts that sort of all were directed towards the sanctuary, which was the center of it, which was the most important part of it, 
which is where God dwelled and where the Holy of Holies was. And again, it was where God existed. And one of the uh, dynamics that existed, and I think, Ryan, you're probably, you've done a little bit more research on this, so I'll hand it to you here in a second. And part of the reason why Jesus gets so upset and he's overturning tables and driving people out, um, there's sort of two theories, and I'll speak of one and Ryan will speak of the other. Uh, One is that um, where these money changers and the seller of of doves were set up was in the court that was meant for Gentiles, which is why one of the things that Jesus says is, my house is a house of prayer for all nations and has become a den of robbers. Certainly it seems that Jesus was aware of some dishonesty happening there. Uh, But the other is that basically there were these merchants taking the place uh, of the Gentiles and basically a space that was reserved for these men and women who were not Jews to partake in all the worship of God were basically robbed of their of the, the only space in which they could participate to do so. And so Jesus, I think, looking into a future in which the gospel is going to be for everyone and in which the whole world will worship God and not just the Jews, he sees this and is obviously indignant because they're not leaving space for these people who weren't uh, Jewish ethnically, but were Jews in their beliefs. And so, as he says, and as he quotes in the Old Testament, the temple was supposed to be a place where the whole world could come and worship God. And these merchants and these sellers sellers of doves and these money changers were basically robbing them of that opportunity. The other theory as to why Jesus does what he does has to do with uh, the exchange of money and uh, Ryan you can explain that part yeah in more detail um, it, it it is interesting that that as much research as we've done over 2,000 years that some of this stuff we're still not entirely clear on mm-hmm. but um, the second theory is that what we have here is more of a uh, a blending of secular life and religious life uh, doing things that were unholy in the temple um, so because of how Palestine was set up at th- this time where you've got Jews who were living and able to maintain their religious freedom to a large extent being ruled by Roman occupiers who were handling governmental affairs you had two different groups with two different ways of operating. And the Romans expected you to use Roman money when you would work with government affairs and when you would pay your taxes and when you would um, buy land and everything, and you'd be using their Roman coinage. But because this is coming from uh, a pagan society that the Jews considered it unholy to use Roman money for God and to to give that money to the temple to be used for holier purposes. And so what you have is you have people coming to the temple who have to exchange their everyday currency for more holy temple money. 
money that the Jews approved of, and you get these exchangers, money exchangers, who were taking the unholy Roman money and giving you holy Jewish money that could be used. And what you always have is this question of exchange rates and um, I, as, as Joe Jew, uh, don't know the exchange rates and I'm trusting you to just give me what my money should be worth, how easy it is to take advantage of people, how right. easy it is to, to take advantage of people who are coming to Jerusalem to worship, that the purpose of their, their visit is to come to the temple. Again, this is the one place where God dwells that you can't come to Jerusalem as a Jew and not go to the temple. And so you've got people who are probably spending their life savings making one pilgrimage to Jerusalem and they've got no money, but I want to give to the temple, give to God. And here is somebody sitting on the outside saying, I'll take your money and, mm -hmm. and shortchanging them and taking advantage of the poor, taking advantage of the widows. And later on, Jesus is going to call out the teachers of the law and call out the Sadducees and the people in charge of the temple and say just that, that he's going to come out after them. And in, in Mark 12, 40, he says that they're, they're, uh, they're thieving and, and he says that they're taking advantage of widows. Um, and, and so what you've got are people who don't have any ability to stand up for themselves whether they lack the, the social uh, stability to stand up for themselves or they lack just the, the economical understanding and knowledge to stand up for themselves, um, being taken advantage of uh, so that somebody can make a buck rather than helping people to worship God. That this is a, this is a house of prayer for all nations. Everyone should be able to come and worship here and you guys are making it harder and harder for people to come. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's sort of the second theory as to what's happening. Yep. Yeah. And so this is a great point to then bring it back home. You know, we've, we've parked out on history and we've talked about the significance. We've talked about the way the temple is set up. But we did, at the beginning, read a passage um, where in the middle there was the temple and Jesus overturning tables. But then there was a story on either side of that story about a fig tree. And sometimes you can read passages in the Bible and without doing much digging, you can be like, huh, okay, that's kind of weird. <laughs> And so there's this story about Jesus overturning tables and it's sandwiched in between this story about a fig tree. But through research, you can learn the depth of why the writer decided to place everything like that and the significance around it. So Rodrigo, if you could talk about that, the significance of the passage that we read in light of all the things that we've learned about about the temple yes so as we've tried to make the point over the past almost 50 minutes the temple was a big deal and uh, I'm, 
Was it a big deal? I'm not sure. It was a huge deal. Okay. And so all that being said, again, like Rachel was saying, let's bring this to a landing. The reason why we did all of that is so we could really talk about this fig tree. All right. Because this fig tree is of extreme importance, not only for our particular podcast here, but for our understanding of the next three chapters or 11, 12 and 13. Because what's going on is this, and if you've seen some of our videos on Mark, I've explained Mark's sandwich method, which is exactly what Rachel was saying. So... I love sandwiches. Yes. So the overturning of tables and all that, and Jesus driving people out of the temple, is the meat on two pieces of bread about this fig tree. And just to recap, because we've been talking a while... Uh, Jesus walks by a fig tree, he's hungry, he goes up to it expecting it to have fruit, it doesn't, he curses it. The next day as they walk by it, the fig tree is indeed cursed and is completely withered. Now, what does that all mean? I'm about to tell you right now. So, let me first explain something about fig trees. Fig trees, one of the curious things about them is that like Mark says, this is not the season for fig trees. However, the detail that he does give us as well is that this fig tree was in leaf, meaning that it was growing new leaves. Uh, winter had gone by and probably this tree had lost its leaves and now it's growing new leaves. But what that meant in a fig tree, usually the leaves and the fruit would would bloom together, if you will. In Palestine... If you, from a distance, saw a fig tree that was in leaf, it would have been completely and absolutely normal for you to expect for that tree to have fruit because the fruit and the leaves usually came together. So Jesus is hungry and he sees this tree at a distance. It is completely normal for him to expect that this tree is going to have fruit. The reason why he curses the tree is basically because this tree is a hypocrite. It looks like it ought to have fruit, but it doesn't. Hmm. And this is basically a real-life parable, if you will, for the leadership, the religious leadership of Israel and temple life. In the sense that Jesus is both cursing the religious leaders of the temple and the temple itself. Why? Because both the religious leaders and the temple, if you will, were as hypocritical as this tree was. As we've already explained, the temple was this beautiful, magnificent, a sight to behold building that was supposed to produce spiritual fruit for the nation of Israel. But when Jesus goes to it, what he finds are practices that aren't spiritual and practices that don't do justice to what the building is supposed to be. So even though Herod's temple was a beautiful thing, just like the tree, it looked good, but it didn't bear the fruit that it was supposed to be. Mm -hmm. In the same sense... The religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, all of them, they were very important people. 
they dressed a particular way that made them very recognizable in society. Like you would look at them and go like, oh yeah, that guy is a Pharisee. And because they dressed a certain way and they, and they dressed in very nice clothes. And again, they were supposed to be sort of set apart and you could totally tell that person is supposed to be a religious leader. And just like the temple, they looked like they were supposed to be spiritual and they looked like they were supposed to bear fruit, but they don't do so. And so Jesus is basically doing away with them. He's saying, just like he curses the fig tree, he is cursing, again, sort of temple life and the religious leadership of the temple. So much so, and and this is where it gets tricky and, and sort of how you interpret this has many different things, the many different interpretations, if you will. But one of the curious things in one of the, the parts that's part of this passage is where Jesus tells his disciples, hey, if you have the faith, you can tell this mountain to go or throw itself into the sea and it will do so. He is even empowering his uh, leaders to understand what it is going to take for them to, to sort of produce the fruit that is powerful and that is awesome. And there used to be uh, a rabbinic saying that people of great knowledge, people ha who had a great understanding of scripture and that really dedicated them li their lives to study the Bible because of their knowledge, they could do great things like tell this mountain to go and throw itself into the sea and it would do so. And Jesus is saying that, hey, it's not knowledge, it is not your education, but it is your faith that's going to allow you to do awesome things for God. And so there's even, in, in this passage, there's even sort of a transition, if you will, that Jesus is handing the mantle that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes had and giving it to his disciples and saying, if you want to do awesome things for God, all you have to, do, to have is faith. And again, I'm not promoting that we shouldn't be great Bible studiers, uh, students, that's the word I was looking for, <laughs> because, I mean, we just, we've been talking about the temple for almost an hour, so clearly we believe in biblical teaching, but I think more than anything, what Jesus is saying here is, let's do away with this, and it's time for something new, and let's not be hypocrites like the tree. Did you want to add anything, Ryan? I think that being good students of the Bible is such an important thing to understanding the Bible. I personally have learned so much just being able to learn from Rodrigo and, and studying out some of this stuff. I think it's important to keep reminding ourselves that, that none of us is born with this knowledge, that this takes research and this takes time, um, and I'm grateful to be able to have platform where we can share out some of this information but make sure that that you're taking the time uh, to to learn how to read the Bible and how to be a good student of the Bible because because these tools are out there and, and we want to be able to use them to help us continue to grow so that we understand the significance and the power of what is being said and the beauty of of how it's being communicated to us um, but I, I think that it's, it's important to be able to see that Jesus is constantly holding up a mirror to us and asking us, 
how do you look? Yeah. That forget about who I'm talking to. Forget about the Sadducees or the Pharisees and how they look bad or how this person looks good or whatever. Look at yourself. How are you doing with this? It, do you have a heart that seeks after God? Do you have a heart that that is giving to other people and helping other people come to know God? Or are you putting things in place that are making it more difficult for people to believe in God? Are you living a hypocritical lifestyle uh, where people look at you and you look religious, but you are not doing anything that brings people closer to God? Are you um, doing things that are pushing people away from God? Are you somebody that is enhancing the gospel in other people's lives? Or are you somebody that that is a fig tree with no fruits? Well, I think this is a great place to end this discussion, but also springboard the next podcast, because in this podcast, we talked about the temple and we talked about the place where God dwells. We talked about how Jewish life revolved around that, but we also know that buildings are inhabited by people usually, and the temple has its representatives. It's people who interact with the rest of the community. And so Jesus does not only um, come into the temple and say radical things about the temple and about God and God's dwelling place, but he challenges the people who sort of represent that to the Jewish nation, to the Jewish culture. And so next week we're going to get into who are those people. We hear their names a lot in the New Testament. If you read through the New Testament, you hear a lot about groups of people. If you grow up in a religious family, you may hear about songs (laughs) about those people. And I think it's very easy to have certain ideas of who these groups of people were and not really feel like we have to do a lot of research on our own because I kind of got who it is. But I think it's really important to connect who the people are with this topic that we just discussed of the temple to really get the significance of overall, where is the Book of Mark going from here? Um, Because it's just going to get more intense if you haven't read ahead. It's going to get more intense as time goes on in the book of Mark. But before we can really understand that and, and really dig into the, the power plays that are going on in the book of Mark, I think we, you know, taking this time to understand all these other th- background things, the temple, the people. The setting. The setting. We are, we are filling in the picture of what is happening in Jesus's day so that we can really move forward to um, dig into the rest of the book of Mark. I think this is a great place to end this podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. I think we've enjoyed talking about this a lot. I I love this stuff. And so uh, we want to thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we do want to remind you that this is a crowdfunded effort. And if you want to contribute to us creating more content to help you grow in your biblical knowledge and in the depth of your understanding of the Bible, uh, please consider uh, supporting us. You can support us at uh, patreon.com forward slash ethermmc. 
And also, if you want to connect with us on social media, we are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at EtherMMC. And thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you on the next one.